Good morning, WTOB listeners. I'm Dylan Greenwood, managing partner at Greenwood Law. And I'm Harold Eustache, attorney at Greenwood Law. And we're here to present to you, for the record, our uh, new radio show premiering here on WTOB. Uh, it's going to be coming to you every Sunday morning, uh, starting at 10.30 a.m. And today we're going to be talking about a very important issue here in North Carolina, and that's self-defense rights. Something that we get called and talked to about all the time, isn't it, Harold? It is, and, and, and uh, it's something that's ever-present in the news and, and in the media, and something that we uh, get a lot of people that want to know um, what their rights are. And there are some misconceptions about what those rights are uh, when it comes to the use of deadly force and non-deadly force in certain situations. And one of the things that has been highlighted in fairly recent news is a case out of Raleigh. And in this case, um, there was a homeowner who shot and killed uh, a young black man uh, of 20 years old in his yard. And this happened in 2016. Uh, the homeowner's name is Chad Copley, and what happened is he called 911 originally in, to report that uh, hoodlums were racing up and down the street. It was around 1 a.m. in the morning when he made that first call. Uh, he said in the recording to 911 that he was gonna, going to kill, that someone was going to kill him um, before the operator picked up. Um, the victim was named uh, Corin Rodney Bernard Thomas. Uh, he was coming from a party just a few homes down from where Mr. Copley lived. And Mr. Copley was charged with first-degree murder. And that's kind of unique, isn't it, Harold? Because a lot of times with first-degree murder, it's premeditated in some way. And this, uh, the facts of this case seem like a almost a split-second decision on the part of Mr. Copley. It did, and I think part of it was some of the statements that he made prior to uh, actually pulling the trigger with those 911 calls that kind of went to what his intent was and where his mind was at the time. So just to set the scene real quick, Dylan, um, these guys are coming down the street. Um, there's a group of them coming from the party, and he is up and he's looking out of the window and he's calling 911. His wife is up as well. Um, while when they're when he says that they're coming by his house uh, on the street, is that would that uh, qualify as something that you would think um, would make him feel threatened in any way? I mean, can you explain, you know, why he felt that self-defense was a proper claim? And on its face, just that in and of itself, I wouldn't necessarily think that. Uh, but in in North Carolina, we do have a couple of aspects of mm -hmm. self-defense law. We have the Stand Your Ground Doctrine and the Castle Doctrine. And those are two aspects of the law that do give certain extra rights given reasonable beliefs of imminent bodily harm or that your life is threatened for you to be able to defend yourself. So with the stand your ground law, uh, a person in North Carolina is justified using deadly force uh, and they don't have to retreat in any way. You get to literally stand your ground. Uh, but you have to have a reasonable belief that deadly force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm uh, to himself, herself, or another person. You are allowed to protect someone mm -hmm. else. And 
it can also apply if another person is entering your home, your work, your car, and that really ties into the castle doctrine. And so what the castle doctrine allows for is that a lawful occupant of a home, a motor vehicle, a workplace is allowed to protect themselves if there's a reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm. But two things have to be present. Uh, One thing is that a, a person that usually a person that received the deadly force uh, had to have um, been coming unlawfully into that home, that car, that um, workplace, and that the person who was using the deadly force then has to have uh, knowledge or reason, reason to believe that an unlawful or forcible entry or unlawful enforceable act was occurring or had occurred. And so not only does the person have to enter, but you have to believe that it was a forcible act. So it can't be like Tom Brady down in, in Tampa Bay that accidentally entered into the, mm-hmm. to the guy's home thinking that it was his offensive <laughs> coordinator. You know, that doesn't work. You know, it's got to be something forcible. There's got to be a different level there. But it's a presumption, and it's a rebuttable presumption. So it means that, you know, if it did happen that way, but you still went steps too far, you, you used more than you thought, then perhaps that presumption could be rebutted by a prosecutor. So in this, in this instance, Mr. Copley, he says that um, a young man stepped a foot on his lawn, and that's his, he's saying that his lawn is his castle, his house and his lawn and all, all of that is his castle. And he's saying this young man stepped a foot on his lawn and he believed that they had a weapon. Is that, you know, why did a jury not buy that argument in this case? Well, first and foremost, they never found a weapon at all. Uh, I think another thing that really played into this case was that Mr. Copley was in his home. He fired from a window. Mm-hmm. So he presumably was behind some form of cover. No one actually entered into the home. At best, the young man entered into something that, you know, that we know in the legal sphere is something called curtilage. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, doesn't normally get talked about. But even just one step off of the street into a yard probably doesn't even come, Mm -hmm. come into that. So, you know, you've got a situation where literally one step on someone's lawn doesn't equate to the use of force in this regard. In fact, the uh, jury instructions that are given to every single juror in the state of North Carolina if uh, self-defense is asserted as a defense says that a person has to enter into a home, enter into the vehicle, enter into the workplace, and so just because you step foot on property doesn't mean that you're actually stepping foot into the home. Right. And so um, in this case, there's the, this case was compared in North Carolina to – it's called North Carolina's Trayvon Martin case. and Trayvon Martin par- 2.0. Trayvon Martin 2.0. And part of, part of, I think, the reason is because Mr. Copley said that he was neighborhood watch. And we've seen this in different – um, in different cases around the country where someone asserts that their neighborhood watch and then takes some action. He also 
Not only did he say he was neighborhood watch, he also said that he was firing a warning shot on 911. So can you explain if warning shots, he said, and he said, excuse me, he said, I'm firing a warning shot um, as I'm supposed to do by law, Mr. Copley said. So can you explain if that's a reasonable belief? Because sometimes we see people saying stuff like that to us. And, you know, I think it's it's worth clearing up. There's no requirement by law in the state of North Carolina to fire a warning shot. In fact, uh, firing a warning shot is has a litany of issues with it. Uh, you may fire a warning shot and accidentally hit the person in your warning shot, and there's no way to distinguish whether or not you, you know, whether it was the warning shot, whether it was the actual shot, you just don't know. And so for that reason, uh, I think the legislature was wise, really, in not making that a requirement uh, that you have to shoot a shot somewhere, anywhere but the person that you're um, dealing with at the time. Uh, so there was a mistaken law there. And, you know, that is what we find a lot with this self-defense uh, stuff. It's very technical. Uh, there's stuff that comes about where uh, there are certain requirements that you have to meet for you to be able to use the force that you're using in that moment in time. And so that's why we're here today. We're here to clear all that up. I know earlier you talked about um, that the person that is defending themselves has to have a reasonable belief that they're in fear of deadly of, of being killed or serious bodily injury. Can you explain, you know, some instances what would be a reasonable belief and what wouldn't be a reasonable belief? Because is it just up to that person? Because Mr. Copley's argument is that he did, you know, he did believe this reasonably. So what? Where? Where is that standard? Well. That- that's the difference. That's a different, you know, subjective belief versus reasonable belief. Subjectively, Mr. Copley got on the witness stand and said that he believed that his life was in danger. His family's life was in danger. He thought he saw a gun. Well, reasonably, what we know the facts to be were that this individual never entered a home, stepped one foot on the property, did not have a firearm in any way, shape, or form, and was making loud noises. Under those set of circumstances, call 911 and let it be it. If someone's coming into your home, then you have the right to institute these things that Mr. Copley took it on himself to do. But a reasonable belief, the clear-cut case is uh, a person's coming into your home, uh, they're looking to burglarize the home, they've got a gun, they come in, bust the door down, you're there, maybe with your family, you see the gun, you are in fear that something's going to happen to yourself, your family, and you use deadly force. That's the clear-cut example. Now, my recommendation is you better make sure they've got that weapon Uh, because, you know, even let's say that they don't, Mm -hmm. there would be some scrutiny in that case. I'm not saying that you wouldn't necessarily be able to assert self-defense because of the sheer act of them coming into the home so forcefully. But I would, again, it's a pre- rebuttable presumption. And that is something that would have to be looked at a great deal. So the clear cut example, again, would be somebody coming in with a weapon, you see it, you're in fear that something's going to happen to your family, yourself, and you use deadly force. So um, on the way over here, we were talking about how this weekend my car got broken into, right? And if, let's say, someone breaks into somebody's car, they're on their property. And you see them break into your car and they're running down the street and you chase them 
and you fire at them because, you know, they just committed an act on your property and, you know, you're a mad. violent act, you're mad, whatever. Yeah. Is that, could that be self-defense? Because not at all. they took, you know, you're trying to get your property back. Not at all. Uh, you're not allowed to be a vigilante. You know, th- at that point, they're retreating. And there's a specific exception carved out in North Carolina's laws, both in statute and case law. The, again, the pattern jury instructions that we referenced earlier is a specific context that says if somebody's retreating, they're removing themselves from whatever interaction that it is, then you don't have to, the right to use that force, deadly or not. And that's a big, big issue. So even if somebody enters your home and they're, you know, they're, you're met with a shotgun or whatever else, mm-hmm. you decide not to fire. And let's say they get scared and they start dashing straight out the door. Got to get away. And they make it a few steps. You don't have the right to use that deadly force at that moment in time because they have made the action, the clear action to retreat. And again, that is a, it's a subjective thing. That's going to be a fact that a jury would have to determine, Mm -hmm. but you know, that would really go against you for trying to assert self-defense in the use of deadly force in that moment. So one of the things I'm assuming that it matters if somebody was the initial aggressor in the, in the interaction, let's say for stand your ground where it's not at a home because Stand your ground could mean any place that a person could lawfully be. So it could just be, you know, at, you know, in the parking lot or wherever. As long as you're um, allowed to be there. As long as you're allowed to be there. So um, if a person, let's say they get into an altercation, somebody gets into an altercation, does it matter who the initial person that throws the first punch is? Does that matter in self-defense? A lot of times it does. Now, again, like anything in the law, there are exceptions and there are exceptions Mm -hmm. to the exceptions and to the exceptions. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're the aggressor, uh, you don't have the right to assert self-defense. It even goes so far, uh, and, and there's case law on this, that if you start mouthing off to the point to get someone to fight you, right. that can just nullify your ability to use self-defense as a defense uh, if there were to be an altercation that takes place. You know, we've... So you can't go up and say... The, you know, your mom, blah, 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 and then the person attacks you, and then you're saying, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, and you're evoking that person, come at me, you know, right. let's do this, let's toss. No, no, okay. not at that point. And that, now, uh, the, again, the exception of that is, even if you're the aggressor and the other person op- opposite you, let's say it's a fist fight, and all of a sudden they take it up and they pull a gun out, and they put you in threat of your life, then you're allowed to assert self-defense as a defense at that point because they've taken it to a whole new level by pulling that gun out. And, and, and when you bring that up, it makes me think of the Trayvon Martin case because part of the argument was that even though uh, George Zimmerman, who, if you guys remember, George Zimmerman was um, the person in Florida near Orlando who said that he was part of a neighborhood watch group and he was the initial aggressor in approaching Trayvon Martin as he was walking home from a convenience store. Now, it's it's kind of undisputed, I think, that George Zimmerman was the initial aggressor in the sense that he um, uh, approached Trayvon Martin. But what was disputed is about what happened afterward. And 
Um, there's some accounts that Trayvon Martin in this kind of fist fight got the best of um, George Zimmerman. And at that point, George Zimmerman felt that he was fearing for his life. So, Harold, given that set of circumstances, how was George Zimmerman able to assert self-defense in the Trayvon Martin case juxtaposed with what we have in the Copley case? So part of the reason that he was able to, even though he was the initial aggressor, is because um, there was some evidence. And again, there was not a ton of evidence in the Trayvon Martin case because George Zimmerman was the only person alive that was there for the entire incident. But there's some evidence from the initial officers that reported and a couple of eyewitnesses that saw some of it that Trayvon Martin did get the best of him in that altercation, in that fist fight. And so George Zimmerman did sustain some uh, different wounds to his face. And the, the account that George Zimmerman gives is that he was being bested by Trayvon Martin, feared for his life, and, and eventually pulled out a gun and shot. Um, Trayvon Martin, uh, because he's, Trayvon Martin was covering his, his uh, nose and mouth. Um, and so in that instance, it is different from the Copley case because Mr. Copley was never in some sort of physical altercation um, with this young man that he killed. He, th this young man never got close to him. He was, again, like you mentioned earlier, he was behind a garage door, shot um, him from a distance on that yard and killed him there. Whereas Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman were fighting in a very, very close scenario where that, that was a point blank shot um, that when George Zimmerman pulled out his gun. So part of what happened was the jury um, did have a, it's not that they had enough evidence to say definitively um, that uh, what exactly happened, but they had enough evidence to, to basically have reasonable doubt as to whether um, uh, George Zimmerman had had malice in, in killing um, Trayvon Martin, and uh, as to, they had they had enough to believe George Zimmerman's story that Trayvon Martin got the best of him in that fight and was able to assert self defense. One other quick thing is that the, they in, in the, the the defense in George Zimmerman's case in Trayvon Martin case. They had a choice between going for stand your ground and um, self-defense. And in Florida, um, what they did was they, they waived their hearing for stand your ground at the, at the beginning of the case. Because if they would have won that, the case would have been uh, thrown out. They instead decided to go for self-defense um, strategy. And that's and different that. here in, in the Copley case where right. they used stand your ground that then bled over into the mm -hmm. castle doctrine and try to combine those two legal theories right. as a way to assert self-defense. So it, it added a level of complication, I think, to Mr. Copley's case, uh, even with the facts being the way that they are. Mm -hmm. uh, it does make it quite technical, especially for a jury to try to weed through all that and figure out exactly what law to apply and how to do it. Um, if you're just joining us here on WTOB, uh, this is Dylan Greenwood and Harold Eustache for the record with Greenwood Law, and we're discussing self-defense rights in North Carolina, and we're discussing uh, the Copley case that just uh, this year finally finished out after all of the appeals and everything that it went through, a uh, case that w happened in Raleigh that was basically uh, a lot of people dubbed Trayvon Martin 2.0. 
And we've been discussing all the different aspects of self-defense here in North Carolina. And the next thing we want to discuss is that there's, there are different types of self-defense. There's perfect self-defense, there's imperfect self-defense, and then there's just no defense to self-defense. <laughs> and uh, Harold, what is perfect self-defense? What happens in those cases? What happens in those cases is where somebody is an aggressor toward, let's say somebody is an aggressor toward me, um, and I'm just minding my business. They come up and you know start assaulting me. And I have to uh, use force against that person to um, stop that assault. And I have a reasonable belief that um, that my life is in, is in jeopardy or that I'm going to get some serious bodily injury. Um, an example of that would be, you know, I'm at home watching TV. Somebody bursts into my house with a gun and I pull out a gun and shoot them. Right. Because they've, they've already showed that they were that they went into the house. They had a gun. Um, I reasonably could fear for, for my life or, or in my safety, um, and I used force against them that was appropriate. So it completely exonerates you because the use of force was reasonable and you used a reasonable amount of that force. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. So if, and it, and it does, in course have said, it does matter um, all these sort of circumstances about, you know, who that aggressor is. So, you know, um, it, it take, you would have to take all that into account into how much force is reasonable to, to respond with. But again, if, if you know, if it's a, a situation where a person is, uh, you know, we're at in the Walmart parking lot and some fighting words are used and they punch me and then I pull out, you know, a Mossberg shotgun and, and shoot them, that would not be a perfect self-defense because the force was excessive given what the aggressor did. So would, would that possibly be an imperfect self-defense case? Um, it would be an imperfect self-defense case because uh, even though I had the right to use defense, um, the, the, the amount of force was excessive. Um, and that would be an example of where a jury would have to look at, or jury or judge would have to look at whether or not um, there was the right of a right amount of force used. And, and we see these in, in, in these facts are taken into account a lot of times in domestic violence cases that we see mm-hmm. where, um, is where a, a fact finders is looking at whether or not the, this is appropriate amount of force, not just for sometimes, not just for that one occasion, but courts have said, you can look at what the past history of the, of, of the two people that are interacting is to know whether or not that um, use of force when you're defending yourself is reasonable. Right. And, you know, I had this in a case last year mm-hmm. where it's actually a bar fight and my client went a few punches too many. Uh, he had the right, right to respond uh, the way he did initially, but then all in a, in a split second, all of a sudden the other person started to retreat and my guy kept going. So all of a sudden it crossed over into the use of force, whether or not it was reasonable. It really literally was a punch or two too far. And in part that case inspired us to come and talk about these particular issues because, you know, self-defense doesn't just apply to lethal force. It applies to non-lethal force too. And it applies, um, just as fervently because, uh, 
um, you know, we do see these cases in outside of uh, the use of lethal force more often than not. Mm-hmm. And it all comes down to whether or not you had the reasonable belief to use the force. And if you met that use of force with equal or lesser force, you can't use too much of the force. Because once you do, all of a sudden it either becomes an imperfect self-defense case, or you just don't have the ability to use self-defense as a defense for the charges. Because, you know, let's say all of a sudden you become the aggressor or someone's retreated, then it just takes that ability right away. And you you don't get that protection any longer. It really does. And that reminds me, one of the things in the Copley case was that the defense tried to put on initially um, in, in pretrial motions that to talk about the background of the victim. And so the reason they did that is because they wanted to say that uh, Mr. Copley had reason to believe that the victim had knowledge of, of firearms, had uh, prior altercations with other people, and that made it reasonable for Mr. Copley to fear for his life. Well, the judge uh, denied those motions and didn't allow that evidence to, to be presented at trial. And part of the reason was because Mr. Copley didn't know um, the victim at all, didn't have any, any prior knowledge of who the victim was. So um, that matters on both sides. So it does matter if you have prior knowledge of that person as far as your reasonableness about whether or not uh, to use to defend yourself. If you're just joining us on WTOB, you're here with uh, attorney Dylan Greenwood and Harold Eustache of Greenwood Law. This is For the Record. Uh, We're discussing self-defense, and on the phone with us, we have a good friend of mine, Rob. Uh, Rob and I served in the 101st Airborne Division together in the infantry. We did a deployment together in Afghanistan, Um, and now Rob is a law enforcement officer in St. Louis, so he served his country, which we thank him for, and he's still serving his community in in St. Louis. So, Rob, are you there? I am. And um, so... You know, one of the things in the news recently has been that there's a couple, there was a couple in St. Louis area that, um, that was on their lawn, very famous picture in 2020 with, uh, weapons. I think there was one AR-15 and a pistol and they were responding to, um, a crowd that had, uh, come near their property. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, most importantly, uh, Missouri has the Castle Doctrine, which is, you know, where you lay your head, you can defend yourself at. So it's either your home, your car, let's say it's a tent. Uh, you have the right to defend yourself. We also have a standard ground law here in Missouri. So there is no um, need to uh, to basically make an effort to withdraw from the situation. The fact of the matter is, is you know, these people were outside you don't know at this time still if anyone was armed in that crowd. There could have been armed. People have been known to be armed. We've seen it. Um, just in fact, the other day we had an individual who was uh, standing with a couple of his buddies with ARs at the bottom of a parking lot, not on our police property, but on the sidewalk on the street just to, just to show their presence there. And me being a veteran and a huge Second Amendment advocate, I'm fine with that, you know? Um, I believe anyone should be fine with it. It's your God-given right if you want to do that. Now, if you take it past that, that's a whole different story. Thankfully, and do you have any instances just, where someone has taken it past that? Yeah. Um, to sidestep your original question, I do have an instance of that. Um, at work, 
I had a gentleman that responded to a call. Uh, a gentleman said that there was a man standing in the street with a firearm uh, holding three what looked to be teenage boys at gunpoint. So, of course, we responded accordingly with uh, more than a few cars. Um, got there, got on scene, took control of the scene, actually spoke with the gentleman, told him, you know, lower his firearm. Uh, at that time, we were asking what was going on. You know, no one was shot. In that instance, it, that wasn't self-defense is what I hear you saying. And even though no. um, he, he may have believed that it was these kids, that going across the street seemed like it was too much. Do you have any advice for um, citizens and how they should uh, handle these kinds of situations in your experience? In, in going forward with saying, like, having a firearm and defending yourself, though, if you're going to draw that firearm, it needs to be the absolute last thing that's happening, correct? I mean, at this point, I fear for my life. I fear for the life of my loved ones, and I need to stop the threat. I have to stop the threat at this point. I feel threatened. My life is threatened. Um, it's not three boys walking down the street. Again, we appreciate you and what you're doing and your service to both the country and your community and um and your advice for our, our listeners today yeah thank you very much rob gentlemen i appreciate it very much listeners thank you for joining us today and don't forget to join us next sunday at ten thirty a.m here on wtob for the record with greenwood law we'll be discussing cuties the netflix distributed movie causing quite a ruckus yeah. around the country uh, but before we go Uh, We're going to leave you with some words, and don't forget the Greenwood Law Bill of Rights. First and foremost, I will not represent myself in court. Number two, I will not do law enforcement's job for them. Number three, I will not make statements when stopped by law enforcement. Number four, I will not consent to searches when asked by law enforcement. And number five, I will not be my own star witness for the prosecution. Remember, everyone, it's not a crime to know and assert your rights. Stay informed. Stay safe. This is For the Record with Greenwood Law signing off.